0: the first lecture in this series on the good administrator was given by Sri C. C Rajagopalachari in 1955 the second and the third series were given by dr. KS Krishnan FRS in 1956 on the New Era in Science, and by Professor J.B.S. Haldane, FRS, on the Unity and Diversity of Life in 1957. Today, on the occasion of the fourth in the series of the Patel Memorial Lectures, we recall the memory of Sardar Vallabhai Patel who left us eight years ago. As we think of him, there arises before the mind's vision the figure of a heroic fighter of our country's freedom, radiating his strength and determination, and filling us in good measure also with his power and vitality. We see before us the embodiment of an indomitable will, a will which no obstacle could deter, of unflinching courage, a courage which no hardship could appall or ordeal quell. Nothing less could in fact have served the country's need and led her to freedom from bondage and consolidated her unity. We visualize what might be the incarnation of righteous revolt, a countenance exuding indignation and spouting forth its challenging defiance. We see, in fact, in corporate form, the spirit of the undaunted leader of the memorable Bardoli Satyagraha, that dual struggle which was the Agnipariksha of tribulation for the more portentous internal struggles of a later date and which put in the weak bodies of his countrymen, in the Sardar's own words, The hearts of lions. We need to keep before us in our day and before the rising generations the example and courage of the lion-hearted Sardar of Bardoli. The struggles of his day are over, but let us not imagine that the tree of liberty which he so selflessly helped to plant can grow without vigilance and fostering care and without the same undaunted will to struggle and to make sacrifices. The pennant of liberty fluttered invisibly from the staff which the Sardar carried at Bardoli. May his spirit live invisibly among us and inspire us and our children forever. After Shri Ramadhyani's introductory remarks, Dr. K. L. Srimali, Union Minister for Education, introduce the speaker thus.
1: Dr. Keskar, Dr. Zakir Hussain, ladies and gentlemen, I consider it a great privilege to preside over the Patel Memorial Lectures which are being delivered this year by Dr. Zakir Hussain, who has been one of the architects of our national education. Dr. Zakir Hussain, is not merely an idealist, but has given practical shape to his ideas on education in Jamia Melia, which is an embodiment of his idealism and his zeal for educational reconstruction. As chairman of Basic Education Committee, which formulated the plan for national education, he has played an important part in shaping the educational policy of our country. The Ministry of Information and Broadcasting could not have selected a better person than him to deliver lectures on educational reconstruction in India. At a time when our country is undergoing rapid change, the task of education becomes difficult. On the one hand, it has to ensure that the moral and spiritual values which we have inherited from the past are preserved and on the other hand it must keep in view the changes that are taking place in our society. No society can thrive by cutting itself off from its cultural roots. In fact, in a period of change it is all the more necessary that we remind ourselves Of the fundamental and basic human values for which our civilization has stood for thousands of years. At the same time, education must reflect the changes that take place in the society. In fact, education to some extent has to be instrumental in bringing about the desired social changes. Education is both conservative and creative. It must be deeply rooted in our culture and at the same time should be responsive to social change so that we may prepare ourselves to face the future. This conception of education throws tremendous responsibility on the educators. They should have a full understanding of our past cultural heritage as well as of the needs of a scientific and technological society. Our educational system should attempt to strike a balance between the modern spirit of science and the old spiritual values of our civilization. The divorce of science and religion has brought catastrophes to the people all over the world. If we want to save ourselves from similar disaster, We should not ignore the spiritual values of our civilization in the pursuit of science and technology. This reconciliation between science and religion should be reflected in our educational system. While teaching science and technology in our schools and colleges, we must also develop appreciation for those moral and spiritual values for which our civilization has stood in the past. Sada Patel, after whom the Patel Memorial Lectures have been named, was one of the builders of modern India. It was his dream that India should emerge as a strong and united nation. Education can play an important role in the realization of this ideal. And it is our responsibility to see that the educational system is reconstructed in such a manner that the dream of this great leader is fulfilled. I now request Dr. Zakir Hussain to deliver his lectures.
2: Dr. Srimali, Dr. Keska, ladies and gentlemen, I must begin by thanking the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting for inviting me to deliver this series of three Patel Memorial Lectures. Having spent most of my working life in Delhi, I usually do not need much persuasion to come here and feel the joy of homecoming when I do. But I am particularly happy at this occasion for it enables me to associate myself with the memory of one I had known and held in high esteem as a valiant fighter for the country's freedom and is a great builder of its future greatness on the firm foundations of an integrated political structure. The bringing together of ill-assorted administrative units into a balanced pattern by integrating more than 550 princely states with the rest of the country was made possible only by the wisdom and the strength of the great Sardar the precision of vision, the sureness of touch, the almost uncanny grasp of detail, the firmness of grip, the understanding of men and affairs, and the rare quality of transmitting to the means the urgency of a great end, these and similar qualities which manifested themselves during the achievement by this greatest statesman of the stupendous task he had set himself and which he accomplished with such unusual thoroughness, ensure for him an immortal place among the great architects of our national life. Let us pay our tribute of admiration and gratitude to his memory. In doing so, however, we may not forget that the edifice of national life is never complete it is always under construction. It grows and expands. The details within its broad constructional outlines constantly demand deliberation. Its innumerable elements have to be kept in organic balance for each one affects and is affected by all the <coughs> others. The process of integration does not end with the integration of administrative units. It's a continuing process and in the broad outline we have chosen for our national development, this unending process is the very basis of our national existence. For we have chosen to organize our people's people's life as a secular democracy. And since we are resolved to evolve for ourselves a socialistic pattern of society, also a social democracy. Education, true education, is the life breath of such democracy. This may sound a platitude, but a little thought would show that it's only too true. Other forms of social organization can do and have done with the provision for the education of the elite only, and left the rest to fend for themselves as best they might. Or they can have and have had varying types of provision of schooling for the various classes and the different ranks. These knights and citizens and gentlemen, these patricians or merchants or guildsmen had their own more or less defined educational ideals. In many cases, these varied ideals found a shared basis in a common religious belief. This is not possible in a secular society, for the comprehensive society which contains the various sections and communities and professions is not a religious unity. This is to hammer into shape sometimes. an educational ideal of the older kind, valid for all as a mold into which each citizen's mind could be poured and shaped, would be an absolutely hopeless enterprise. It would be stupid to attempt it in a democratic society with its myriad individual aptitudes seeking to develop and grow in order to contribute to the evolution of a morally free An autonomous personality. This situation, which superficially appears to create an insuperable difficulty, is is in reality education's opportunity. For it enables the democratic educator to dispose of the mistaken notion that education must be the shaping of the educand according to a given generic type, according to a ready-made educational ideal with a sharp delineated content. It enables him to realize that education is not really a pressing into shape, but a letting loose and a setting free which respects the unique and specific individuality of the educant. It gives him an opportunity and presents him with a challenge to initiate a concept of education which can be the basis of educational reconstruction in a secular social democracy. For our future as a people will depend in no small measure on the ideas and principles which inspire Indian education and on how its evaluation helps in the growth and development of the democratic way of life, on how it provides for the full growth and development of individuality, and on how it harnesses harmoniously developed individuality to social ends on how it probes into the secrets of the self and how it masters the mysteries of selflessness. If education is that important, and I presume your agreement that it is, then mere tinkering with administrative detail by adding a year to one stage and subtracting it from another, by the addition of a subject here and a subject there, by the replacement of bad textbooks, by, if possible, worse, By giving to existing schools a different name and so on, the immense challenge of educational reconstruction will not be (coughs) met. It will also not be met by an expansion of the educational apparatus without a full and operative consciousness of its real aims and objectives and without a close correspondence between the ends and the means adopted for their realization. A deeper and more widespread understanding of the nature of education and of the functioning of a democratic society is essential to a sane reconstruction of our educational edifice. To take education first. At the very outset, we should rid ourselves of the all too generally held notion that education is putting information into an otherwise empty head. No, education is not addressing dressing up, It is not writing on a tabula rasa. It is not the imposition of just this system of training or that system of garniture, decided all but arbitrarily in view of a certain industrial or economic survey or in obedience to the dictates of a certain political ideology. The basic principle of education in a democracy should be reverence for the individuality of the child. The child who is to grow into the citizen upon whose full development and intelligent and willing participation in making it a more and more just and more and more morally perfect social social organism, the very fate of democracy depends. For democracy is indeed nothing but the full discharge by every citizen of duties he is competent to perform, duties to himself and duties to his society. This competence can only be the result of aptitudes discovered and developed to their fullest by education. How does this happen? How is education possible? I shall briefly state my view. The process of education or the culture of the mind as I see it bears a striking resemblance to the process of the growing development of the human body. As the body from its embryonic beginnings grows and develops to its full stature by means of agreeable, assimilable food, movement, and exercise in accordance with physical and chemical laws, so does the mind grow and develop from its original dispositions to its full evolutionary cultivation by means of mental food and mental exercise according to the laws of mental growth. We should never lose track of the basic fact that the mind to be educated is the individual mind. The food on which it has to thrive and develop consists of the goods of culture that surround him, all of them concretizations of the mental effort of other minds. To understand the first element of this mutual relationship, we should follow in broad outline the development of the individual human mind from infancy onwards. The individual human mind it may be unnecessary to remind you, comes to the world as a bundle of instincts. It manifests to begin with only physical functions as the result of his physical instincts, to be followed soon by psychical functions, which in their turn are the outflow of psychical instincts and impulses. In the exercise of these physical and psychical functions, the child experiences his first satisfactions and his first disappointments. He begins to like actions and things, to evaluate them, to set that is value on them. This process of evaluation, of associating positive or negative value with his experience, is as fundamental to mental growth as any other. As these evaluations accumulate in the child's memory, a great step forward is taken in the mental life of the child. The consciousness of ends and means is awakened. He starts aiming at things and actions which he likes and values, and in the context of his modest but constantly growing experience, adopts means to reach those aims and to experience those values which are attached to them. Gradually, the ends to which value is attached increase in number. The effectiveness of means in the attainment of the valued ends reverts the interests of the child on these means. They too become valuable on account of the values, valued end which they subserve. A system of values, ends and interests develops and gives to the growing individuality its peculiar mental structure. <coughs> the values experienced in the early stage of development are however exclusively sensual material values. The evaluation scale registers only the pleasant and the unpleasant, the comfortable and the uncomfortable, bodily freedom or bodily restraint, sensual enjoyment and sensual annoyance. The whole system of values, ends and interests remains, so to say, on the sensual level, a level which is shared by the higher animals with men in varying nuances. But the human individuality develops a third group of functions which we may call the intellectual and the spiritual. The satisfaction of those functions also leads to an experience of values, but these are values of quite a different order from those just mentioned. One has only to mention them by their names, the true, the beautiful, the good and the holy, as against physical health, pleasure of the senses, material gain and sensual love to indicate the vast difference that separates them. These bring with them a particularly satisfying sense of permanence and absolute worth and validity. They press for commitment. They insist on being realized. No sooner have they gripped us, they become the predominant and decisive elements in shaping our scale of values. Sensual values are cheerfully subordinated to them. They transform and transmute. Education, in the truest sense of the word, is helping the mind of the educant to experience these absolute moral and intellectual values so that they in turn urge him on to be committed to realize them as best he may in his work and in his life. As man's animal being expresses itself in the realization of ephemeral subjective values, his moral and spiritual being propels him to experience and realize permanent objective values. They give a meaning and purpose to his existence. For the animal, life has no meaning and no significance. It has no self-chosen purpose, it just lives on as it must. Man, on the other hand, when he has once experienced these moral absolute values, commitment to them gives a meaning and significance to life. The service the maintenance and the realisation of these absolute values, they lend eternity to his moments. Now the mind can experience these ultimate values only through the goods of culture which it comes across and which in their turn are the product of the mental effort of some other individual or group of individuals who have concretized these values in them. These cultural goods of society are represented by its sciences, by its arts, its techniques, its religions, its customs, its moral and legal codes, its social forms, its personalities, its schools, its institutions and so on. They are all of them, in the last analysis, products of the intellectual and moral energy of individual or collective minds. They are the intellectual and moral values of mind objectified. They are the expressions of man's moral and spiritual being. These goods of culture are the only means of setting the educational process into motion. They are the only food for the nourishment of the human mind. The encounter with these cultural goods is mediated by the home, by the school, the institutions of higher learning, the public institutions, and the all-embracing activities and examples of public life. The growing mind takes hold of them unconsciously at first and more and more deliberately later and uses them for the specific human development. When these goods of culture are so used, they become educative goods. They were first products of culture. Cultivated minds had produced them. They now cultivate minds educate them. It is however important to remember that every mind cannot make use of the same cultural goods for its cultivation. Every individual has from birth his own specific way of reacting to the world of men and things around him. We trace this to the peculiar configuration of his physical and psychical functional dispositions and call this specific mode of reacting which expresses itself in feeling, willing, and acting, as well as in perceiving and thinking his native individuality. On the foundations of this indi- original individuality, hardly susceptible to any significant change, is built up, with the help of the objective culture in which it lives and moves and has its being, a more developed individuality, a Lebensform, a life form, as Spranger has called it. Education is the individualized, subjective revivification of objective culture. It is the transformation of the objective into the subjective mind. It is an individually organized sense of values, awakened by goods of culture, which are embodiments of the values accessible in experience to the person concerned. If this is what education is or should be, there are two kinds of considerations which deserve our attention. Firstly, considerations which, in my view, hold good for all education. And secondly, considerations which should be kept in view in the education which society organizes for all its members. I shall take the first group first. Considerations which hold good for all education. of all the principles which flow out as it were from the concept of education as I have formulated it, the one that appears to be of special significance for a democratic society and which is perhaps the most commonly ignored in all educational organization is the principle of individuality. It says what should have been obvious as the basic axiom of the educational process that the cultivation or education of the individual mind is possible only by means of cultural goods whose mental structure wholly or at least partially corresponds to its own mental relief. The specific mental constitution of the educand, namely his individuality, determines his original indigenous system of values, ends and interests. These are directed toward goods of culture which are the products of similar mental constitutions, embodiments of similar values, achievements of similar ends, and realizations of similar interests. This system of values, ends, and interests, which characterizes each individual, may be said to represent the totality of the individual life. And so, in the pursuit of those interests, all the aspects of individuality get, so to say, their exercise and attain their growth. This is then followed by grasping and grappling with similar cultural goods of higher complexity, and the mind proceeds from strength to strength in its development. And what is quite natural, these interests usually branch off into newer and fresher side interests, and these new interests sometimes vie with the original ones in importance and vehemence, and are responsible for the growth and development of the other constituents of the individual mental structure. The original technical, practical interest of an active boy may well grow into theoretical and aesthetic and even religious interest. But by and large, you cannot hope to educate the theoretically inclined boy or girl except through the theoretical goods of culture. And you can bring him to a more or less effective understanding and appreciation of the other regions of culture, also primarily through theoretical goods. The true culture of the mind of an aesthetically gifted pupil is possible only through goods of the aesthetic type. One would attempt in vain to educate him through goods representing a theoretical or practical mental structure. The door to culture can be opened for him only by means of the goods of the aesthetic type. Once this door to culture is opened by the key specifically suited to a certain pupil, many avenues may lead into the vista. For regions of culture are not isolated islands, entirely detached one from the other. They are joined to each other by a thousand connecting links. From art to science and technique, from science to art and technique, from technique to science and art, a thousand transitions in a thousand nuances are possible. But if some of the forms of psychic structure are entirely absent from a mind, then the cultural goods corresponding to them cannot be the means of cultivating it. We cannot bring the unmusical ear to experience the real beauty of a great symphony and get its spiritual nourishment from it. We cannot hope to cultivate the mind of a colorblind person through masterpieces of painting. We knock in vain to open the windows to the cultivation of the mind by means of theoretical instruction, in the case of boys bursting with activity. Even that most precious cultural good, a great personality, can make its contribution to the cultivation of other minds only through the basic attitude of a social mental structure, through sympathy, love, confidence, and reverence. Even personality can speak to us only in our language, the language of our soul, which is the language of our specific mental constitution. Entirely alien structures represented in a personality are beyond our comprehension and we can pass such personality by without being any the better for it. Personalities embodying mental structures analogous to our own can grip us as few things can and help us in the course of our intelligent, intellectual, moral, and spiritual development. The basic axiom of education is the congruence and correspondence of the mental moral structure of mind of the educant and the structure of the good or goods of culture, serving to educate, cultivate, and develop it. Culture, as Simmel has well said, is the path of the mind's sojourn from a narrow, closed unity, through an unfolding, expanding diversity, to a developed, expanded unity. I do not propose to detain you here with the extremely valuable and interesting work that has been done on the classification of individual mental configurations. That would take long, and length can in a lecture render the interesting, at least boring. But I do wish to share with you a classification which has been suggested by the great German educator, Georg Kirchensteiner. I do so especially because I would be using some of his terminology later in these lectures, and because his work is not so well known in this country, And if I may interpolate a personal remark, also because I owe almost the entire framework of my educational thinking to him, with the subsequent privilege of sitting at Gandhiji's feet and working out some of his educational insights, help to strengthen and deepen and enrich and to make a shaky theoretical structure a part of my being, for it transmuted words into commitment. Christian Steiner starts by noticing, you would find that on the blackboard. Christian Steiner starts by noticing two basic psychological dispositions of individuals contemplative and active dispositions. Pure contemplation does not concern itself with action, acting on, or producing anything in the outside objective world. But it should not, for that reason, be equated with the passive, the inert, the inactive. It does work up what it imbibes of the outside objective world. It is not just passively receptive. It involves the inner mental activity of viewing and considering, reflecting and meditating and giving a relevance and a meaning to the elements of consciousness. It is an act or attitude of significant, meaningful perception, forming and shaping and creating in the realm of consciousness. A great deal indeed of mental activity is involved in it, but it is not active in the sense of the other basic attitude which prevails among human individuals, which Kershe Steiner has named the active, in the sense of being directed towards the realization of objective factual relationships in the world of phenomena. This activity of the contemplative as well as of the active attitude can be either mainly imitative or mainly creative. The imitative activity in contemplation, as well as in action, can be either purely mechanical or may be preceded by a contemplative operation of comprehending what it seeks to imitate. Contemplation and action, again, can each of them be of two kinds in view of their aim, aim, end, and purpose. One can either be moved to contemplation by the perception of objects or of some of their aspects in the region of sense experience, or by their relations to something beyond experience, and the end or purpose is either imminent or transcendent. In the first case, it can either be interested in the reality and existence of things, their being and becoming, how they come to be and cease to be, or it can be interested in their purpose their significance, their value. Both these attitudes of contemplation we can call theoretical, pure theoretical in the first, and teleologic theoretical in the second case. The scientific goods of culture are the results of the objectification of these two attitudes. In both of them, there is a consciousness of separation not only between the subject and the object, between the contemplator and the thing contemplated, but also between the form and the content of the latter. In cases where contemplation is not concerned with the validity and reality of things but with their outer or inner appearance, although the distinction between the subject and the object is still persists, that between the form and the content vanishes. One does not in some cases recognize the content by an act of reflection but by direct experience. This is the aesthetic attitude. The objectifications, its objectifications produce the aesthetic, the artistic goods of culture. The psychological attitude, which gets its satisfaction by the contemplation of transcendental value relationships, is called the religious attitude. In some of its extreme manifestations, such as the mystic union, not only the distinction of the form and the content, but even that of the subject and the object is obliterated. And in cases, as in cases of ecstasy, the objectifications of this attitude produce the religious goods of culture, its religious symbols and courts and ceremonial, and not the least important, its religious personalities. For the genuine mystic or religious experience sets a torch aflame that burns through life, giving warmth and light to all who come close to it. Now to pass on from the contemplative to the active residue. This seeks to objectify factual relationships. It too can be of two kinds, according to the nature of its end or purpose. The end or purpose of an action is determined by the value one seeks to realize by means of that action. The satisfaction one drives from an action is due either to the value which the action has directly for the doer, or to the value which it has in producing satisfaction in others, which is the same thing as saying that the active attitude is either egocentric, or self-centered, heterocentric, or other-centered. The egocentric active attitude, again, can either aim, aim at the acquisition, preservation, and expansion of the material apparatus of life, or at the enrichment and ennoblement of one's moral personality. We may call it egocentric material in the first case, egocentric ideal in the second. The roots of egocentric action lie in the soil of self-preservation and self-assertion, those of heterocentric action in sympathy and affection. The heterocentric active attitude can aim at, firstly, the satisfaction of someone, not the doer, or of some group to which the doer himself does not belong. Or it may aim at the satisfaction of a group of which the actor is himself also a member. We have the altruistic attitude in the first case, the social attitude in the second. There is a third active attitude, that in which the value of the action to the doer lies in the action itself, independent of any individual or group satisfaction. This is the asocial active attitude or the objective attitude. Kirshner Steiner has thus Derived three basic contemplative types, the theoretical, the contemplative, the aesthetic contemplative, and the religious contemplative. And three basic active types, the theoretic, the aesthetic, and the religious, each one of them in four variations, the egocentric, the social, the altruistic, and the objective. Pure types are indeed rare. The configuration of individuality depends not only on the dominance of one or more of these basic forms, but also on the varying degrees of intensity in which the several attitudes enter into its composition. I am afraid this rather concentrated version of an eminent educator's classification of individual dispositions must have been, to express it with an understatement, a little boring. But I believe it is something of a relief for a bored audience to know that the person perpetrating the boring infliction is at least conscious of his guilt, for the situation becomes hopeless if he is blissfully ignorant of what he is doing. As a consolation, I might tell you that I, in my turn, have tried but for an involuntary yawn to face similar situations with almost heroic self-restraint. Let me hasten to testify that so have you. Pleasantries apart, I do think that one of the most fruitful tasks of scientific education and cultural psychology should be to discover the various types of mental structures and values and interests systems on the one hand and the educational values imminent in cultural goods of different kinds on the other. Much work has already been done in these fields and although Indian educationists and psychologists may well be expected to exert themselves to extend the broad frontiers of knowledge in these fields, educational policymakers and educators may apply themselves to the more modest and less high-sounding, but perhaps the more urgent work of using the insights that are already available. I now come to the second principle. A corollary of the principle of individuality in education is the consideration due to the stage of development of the educant. The process of education is a continuing process in which the journey is as important as the destination. For indeed, one never arrives. Every stage in it has its importance and significance. It would be thoroughly mistaken to consider the various stages as merely preparatory to something that is supposed to happen at the remote end. A rather early and elementary stage in the progress of education, graduation, or well getting a doctorate, is raised to the thoroughly undeserved pedestal of being the end, whereon might stay put, making the rest of the lifelong adventure of education almost meaningless, and vitiating with almost vicious thoroughness the enchanting and energizing march through the earlier stages in which enough strength could have been built up for the equally perhaps more exciting journey ahead. The immediate can be sacrificed to the ultimate in education only at the latter's cost. All preparation, as the great German educational thinker Schleiermacher has somewhere aptly observed, all preparation must at the same time be satisfying experience. All satisfying experience, also a preparation. It should be the concern of every well-organized system of education not to seek officiously to influence the speed of the pupils' mental growth. If the school is not to be a training factory for producing men as if they were machines designed to perform predetermined jobs, if, it's to be, if it is a place of education as it well might aspire to be, it should provide for the development to maturity of every stage in the pupils' growth and also to be vigilantly on guard lest dismiss the evidences of the onset of the next stage, for pulling and pushing can both be disastrously bad in education. Christian Steiner has in his theory, Der Bildung, characterized three chief periods of development in early life, each of seven years' duration. The first period, up to seven years of age, he calls the age of play. The second, from seven to fourteen, the age of egocentric, and the third, from 14 to 21, that of heterocentric interests of work. Each stage should be respected in its own right and not made subordinate to the succeeding ones. The spontaneity of play and its carefree objectlessness should not be destroyed in order to train in skills. Play is its own end. The child in the age of play does not set himself any objective outside the play. He does not even aim at developing his skills for playing the play better. We could, if he we were wiser and not only older, so direct his play that he might, in the course of his pleasurable activity, by repetition of actions or otherwise, develop a certain skill in their performance, and this might serve in the succeeding period of work as means for the fulfilment of his self-set aims, and he might then deliberately develop them further with that end in view. Play may not be sought to degenerate into a task. The age of egocentric work, which emerges almost imperceptibly out of the play age, is still characterized by an active, but this time purposive, practical disposition, partly technical and partly social. Except in very rare cases, theoretical and aesthetic contemplation seems still to be rather remote in the age from 7 to 14 the school should, in the case of pupils of this age group, provide for satisfying the active practical urges. It may arrange the work projects in such a manner that without depriving the pupils of the satisfaction that would come from the exercise of the practical, technical and social urges, the foundations of theoretical and contemplative activity at a later period are perhaps also laid. The opposite tendencies observable in most school systems of premature forcing of the talented, usually prompted by highly educated parents who want their child to have several t- tries at competitive examinations and the unimaginative exercise of bureaucratic uniformity which seeks to hold back the hair to march in a step with the tortoise, both offend equally against the consideration due to the actual stage of development of the child. I now come to the third consideration. The first two considerations we have already dealt with, as throwing out the concept of education as an inner formation and not an outward addition, the considerations, as you would remember, of the natural individual makeup of the educant and the particular stage of his development, are both of them of basic importance in the classification and organization and building up of types of schools in a system. The third and the fourth consideration which I will now place before you, are concerned with the operation of the Educative Act. These are the principles of totality and of activity. I feel I have just time enough today to deal briefly with the first of these, namely totality. I shall deal with activity as an educational principle in the next lecture. The principle of totality demands that the Educative Act should have a total impact on the educant. Educational educational measures should be directed, that is, to the development of the whole mental structure and not to that of only an aspect or part thereof. No less an educator than the great Pestalozzi cried himself hoarse, bringing home to people the organic unity of the educative activity. It's concerned at the same time with what is termed the intellectual, the moral, and the physical basic powers of the child, or in simpler language, of the head, the heart, and the hand. In our own land, Gandhiji, with his extensive and loving observation of child nature, his uninhibited ability to feel one with children, and his deep insight into their potentialities, gave all the weight of his great personality to this as also to the principle of work as a potent instrument of education. And yet, and yet, schools all over the world and schools by the hundred thousand in our own country, under the false idea of stuffing the mind with information or the ambitious snobbishness of the isolated development of the intellect, have continued to carry on as if Gandhi and Pestaloji had never lived. They have done so because they are content with instruction and care nothing for education. They are content with increasing the pupil's efficiency in certain operations and skills and can conveniently ignore what to them seems to be a minor consideration as to what sort of a man he will grow into. The view seems to be implied that if a school has taught someone to write, it is not its concern whether the man who has acquired the skill has been set on the road to be able to write an immortal sonnet or to forge a document to get some shady transaction through. If he has been taught to read, it is a matter of indifference to the school if he is likely to become a reader of the classics or of the gutter press. If he has been properly coached to pass an examination, which is neither valid nor reliable, it is none of education's business to ask if he has also been helped to be honest and truthful, socially cooperative and helpful, if he can see any beauty in art and nature, if he can ever persuade himself to subordinate his little selfish ends to the good of the whole of which he is a part. But education, we have seen, has to do with what one becomes as well as what one can do. It is indeed concerned with the skills, but even more so with the objectives to which the skills contribute. It should seek to shape the totality of the educant's being, the school, therefore, that aims at the realization of the growing moral an intellectual self can hope to achieve the same only if it grips at every turn the whole of this growing self, that is the entire values, aims and interest system of the educant. The more and the often it can do this, the more effectively will it have a total impact on the pupils' development. In the training of our teachers for various kinds of schools, they should be provided with the techniques of such competent observation as will enable them to understand their pupils and direct their educational work on them in the light of this understanding. But no amount of training can help to bring this about as effectively as a normally intelligent, understanding, loving intercourse between teachers and their pupils on the playing field in excursions and mutually helpful, productive work in and out of a school consciously organised as a community of work and life. The insight that this will give into the true interests of the pupils can however be put to fruitful educational use only if the school in its organisation has taken cognizance of the variety of interests as well as the prevalence of certain common interests in a certain age group. I feel I should end today's talk at this stage For if I have not quite succeeded in exhausting you already, it is too late to try to do so now. I shall give myself another chance tomorrow.